0: This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations, all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those ten tracks was hosted by Disciple First Ministries with Craig Etheridge and his team. Here's audio content from Disciple First and their track called Transitioning a Church to a Disciple-Making Focus.
1: Okay, are we having fun yet? Yeah. All right, now we're getting to the good stuff. I always say that every time, now we're getting to the good stuff. Okay, uh, Any any questions that you had pop up? During the break that you'd like to ask before we dive into I'm about to start talking more about change how you lead through change but anything related to relational uh, investment or any of the stuff we covered so far yes yeah as I said before in the in the grow phase of Jesus I said that Jesus worked on character and competencies. And when I got to competencies yesterday, I said the three basic competencies Jesus trained was how to walk with God, how to reach your world, and how to invest in a few. Those were the three that uh, Pope mentioned, uh, Randy Pope mentioned last night. remember at the very end, he said, if you could just do three things, he said, worship every day, that's walk with God, uh, go after the lost, that's reach your world, and invest in a few people. So, I mean, those three things... You know, it is really the the core of what we need to do. So we are producing some resources. One book is called Walk with God. This is really uh, simple. Walk with God. Guess what? The second book is Reach Your World. Third book is Invest in a Few. And uh, they're really seven weeks apiece. And so they're in production right now. So my guess is that by middle of next year, they'll all be done. What we're doing is that we're writing them and then I'm taking my staff through them before we ever print them. Because I want them to be field tested and uh, make sure that this really works in, in a group setting. So we're, we're taking the time to write it and then really do it in a group before we print it up. Uh, but I would say next week, I mean next year, uh, sometime in the middle of next year, they should be available. And you can go to um you can go to the Disciple First website. They'll be available off Disciple First or a link to that. You can get the Bull Moose book right now. We have some hard copies here. And also you can get it on Amazon, iTunes. There'll be a link off our website for that. But everything that I'm teaching on is in this book. And obviously I can't get through everything in, in the amount of time that we have, so I'm kind of skipping through some things. But a lot of, you're, if you sit through this and you read this, you go, Oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that. And so, uh, there'd just be more biblical support, uh, for what I'm saying that's fleshed out in that book. Uh, so that's available now. Uh, we are also working on a workbook, uh, for Bold Moves where you actually can lock in for several months and just a workbook of how do you actually work this through in your church step by step. You'll do the seven steps through the workbook. Uh, that's in production right now also, or about to be in production. So um, we're working hard to try to get those things done. Um, okay, good. Any any other questions, thoughts, comments, complaints? That's a really good question. Did you all hear the question, uh, how, do you, how do you use a tool but not get them so dependent on the tool that they never get into the word, right? Uh, that's a really good question. I think that whatever tools you use, Uh, like in the walk with God piece, it needs to be showing them how to read the word on their own and training them how to hear from God on their own so they become self-feeders. The tool is just the on-ramp to get that discipline in their life. Okay? So like the tool that we're using, the first three weeks, uh, there's word in it, what they're reading, you know, there's scripture in what they're reading. But then, uh, there's a pivot point in it where now they start reading through a chapter a day out of the Gospel of Luke and then we train them on how to journal and how to, uh, identify, how to hear from God by reading the Bible. So at the end of it, they've now gone through the whole Gospel of Luke and they're kind of on track. They've got a rhythm there of how to do that. Uh, if you don't train them to do that, then you really haven't taught them how to walk with God long term because now the book's over. I don't know what I'm still supposed to do. And so, Your tool should help you to train them on how to read the word on their own, not just be dependent on another tool. Does that answer your question? Okay. Good question. Yes? Explore, connect, grow, multiply. Um, What you're trying to do here is move them through the process. This connect phase is where they're connecting in community, they're connecting in the Word, they're in the, they're in the church, they're, they're being nurtured by the Word. Here is where you're training them on character and competencies of how to walk with God, reach your world, and invest in a few. Okay? So, in answer to your question, you get somebody that's saved, they cross the faith line, you want to connect them in a community of some kind. Um this is where they 're getting the nurture of regular Bible teaching, and they need that they need a community where they 're they 're just hearing the word taught and they 're studying the Bible and people investing and so what you 're doing in here as you move them into here is you 're you 're drilling down into these things that they need to have so they can reproduce but there is a mistake many times that people go from explore I cross the faith line, I skip over this. And I'm going to disciple you devoid of biblical community. You know what I'm saying? And this this growth phase is not all that they need. They they need they need preaching, they need community, they need the one another's, they need all of that. And so I think it's a mistake. Uh, and I've and I've I've done this myself. This is I've made this mistake so I can tell you uh with you know by example that I've taken a guy. He's not going to come to church that much, but he wants me to disciple him. And what I found is that person almost never reproduces because he doesn't have the ongoing support of the family to keep him healthy, and so it's very seldom does does he ever move forward in reproduction. Like a tree without roots. Yeah. So there is a reason why Jesus followed this pattern, and I'll tell you an example of a guy that right now. He uh, he's a professional golf trainer. Okay, so he works with golfers on uh, and he, everything from co- collegiate level uh, all the way to professional level. He's a very disciplined guy. He comes to our church. He I know right where he sits every Sunday. He's a you know, he's mid forties. Uh, he asked me to lunch, and so we got to lunch. We're talking. He's a Christian. He goes man, basically what he's saying is I want to grow spiritually. He's basically saying I want you to disciple me, and I said. Uh, Okay. So I draw out the little, this little thing. I kind of explain it. I said, well, this is kind of what your next steps might be. And, uh, and he said, I said, so you need to get into a group. We need to get you in a group. He goes, well, he goes, I don't, I don't really need a group. Uh, he goes, they can't teach me anything. I mean, I can, I'm, I'm well read. I read plenty of stuff. There's not really anything I can learn in a group, blah, 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 that kind of thing. So I just sit there. We're having lunch. So I just let, I just let that hang in the air for a while. We just didn't comment. And then after a minute I said, um, you train golfers, right? Yeah. I said, what if what if a golfer came to you and said, Hey, I really want you to teach me how to golf? And you said, Okay, I want you to go over there and hit a hundred balls. And they said, Well, you know, I've I've already hit hundred balls. I don't need to hit a hundred balls. I, I've watched on video a hundred balls. I mean, I've watched people hit a hundred balls. Uh, well, how what are you gonna do with a person like that? Are th- are they teachable? Because you know there's a reason why you're telling him to hit under balls. And he goes, yeah. And I said, are you following the connection here? He goes, yeah, I'm following the connection. Now, has he done that yet? No. But I'm not going to invest in him if he's not willing to do a simple thing that I asked him to do, which is just show up. And I've just told him that. Hey, I love you. I really want God to work in your life. But if you're not going to work with me, i got people that I can spend my time with that are going to work with me. And that sounds harsh, and I don't really mean it to be harsh, but we do have, I mean, that's a loving thing for him. And so I want him to wrestle with that. Now I'm going to come back to him and say, hey, have you gotten a group yet? You want me to help you get into a group? But at some point, I can't move forward with you if you're not willing to do a simple task that I'm asking you to do. Um, cause there's a reason for that. And so anyway, that's maybe a long answer to your question, but I think that's where you, that's where this biblical knowledge comes from. Okay? Y'all good? Alright, so, uh, Brother Moody did a great job of talking about dealing with uh, religious activity and moving to relational investment, but he also used a four-letter word called change. It's not really four letters, but it probably should be, right? And so, what, what I want to talk about is... Uh, how do we move from, uh, tradition to evaluation? Okay. So here, here's what we've covered so far. You have been convinced that Jesus' model is the best model. You, uh, you have defined a disciple. You have clearly identified the process. You've even evaluated your programming to understand that you're overly weighted in the connect phase and probably not that balance in the others. You have decided you are going to personally invest in people. You have chosen a tool. You have picked a person. You have now discipled this person. And you've moved just like what he expressed, which was exactly right on. You went from an individual, I'm the only one making disciples, to now I disciple two or three people, and now they multiplied, and now they multiplied, and now you have a team. You've got 10, 12, 15 people that are now disciple makers. Okay. Up until that point, you do not need to change anything. If you start making changes before you have a little covey of disciple makers around you, you're walking the plank. Y'all with me? Because you need these people around you. Uh, you know, I was talking with the brother, and he said, "Well, yeah, we're discipling, but none of them multiply." Well, I'm saying, "Well, then you're not discipling. You're having a Bible study. You know, you're discipling. You haven't made a disciple until they've made a disciple. That's that's a terminology that you hear a lot. Uh, we we like to say, you know say don't you don't release them until they've reproduced. Don't release until they've reproduced. So You gotta, you gotta be sure that they, there's multiplication happening. And so you move from, uh, uh, three to nine to twelve to fifteen to twenty, and you'll have a group of people. Now these are the people that are kind of your core disciple-making team. That's a whole step I'm skipping over. It's in the book, but we're running out of time, so I had to skip over that. Uh, but it's very important. So now that's where you are. Now you're here, you're leading your church. You've got about ten, fifteen, uh, disciple-makers. And now you want to start evaluating, uh, your programming and dealing with that. We are addicted to programs. Amen. And so what do addicts do when you take their fix away? (laughs) That's right. They find another one. They fight. They get cranky. Uh, they, they go through detox. We were joking last night we need to write a book called Detox, you know, how to how to detox your congregation. Uh because uh that, that's exactly how they respond. Um why is it important to make changes? Because eventually, if you don't change some things, then you will never get to disciple making movement in your church because everything will be working against you. There's a danger in misalignment. Uh the danger of misalignment. Um, this is this is uh, tires that are misaligned and they rub and they create you know, wear and tear on your vehicle. This is like rowers that w- are not in sync and so they're actually rowing against one another. What you're going to find is that this growing desire for disciple making in your church gets uh, undercut and worked against by the inertia of your ongoing programming. So eventually, you're going to have to bring change. But I don't recommend that you bring change immediately after the disciple-making forum. All right? That's why you haven't preached on it. Remember, you I warned you, do not preach on this. Do not preach on this. Do not preach on this. Just make a disciple. And then now you've multiplied. Now you've got a group. Now you got a team. Now you're about ready to start going more public it's interesting just be reminded that Jesus spent 18 months a year and a half under the radar of John's public ministry working silently building his team before he ever went public now Jesus had to go under the radar for 18 months you're going to have to do the same thing at our church we did not post any hey sign up for this hoppership class we're meeting with men Lot, none of that we just started silently as Jesus said like leaven works through the dough you're silently, quietly just making disciples and make disciples and make disciples until it comes to a point that it becomes obvious that these lives are changed and people are different and something is happening, and then it's hey, I want in on that, not what do you think you're doing around here? All right? Because the evidence is in the lives that are changed. Um some dangers of mis uh, some thoughts about misalignment. Misalignment is dangerous. Um for example, misaligned programs distract. You from resources distract people their time and attention like uh, Chris talked about um, misalignment, uh, misaligned programs dilute your resources misaligned programs clutter your calendar everybody's so busy doing all these things they don't have time to make disciples misaligned programs are not strategic they move by their own inertia not because they have a significant contribution to the church we've just always done it that way Amen. Uh, misaligned programs are often off limits uh, from any critical assessment. Well, you can't. We've always had that. You can't not do that. Um, like I said, I don't recommend that you you deal with these unilaterally by well, we're just going to cut this and we're going to do that. Uh, you might have the bandwidth to survive that. You may not. So I want to give you a way to to deal with that healthy church. Churches are constantly evaluating their programming uh, to ensure that they produce a 3D disciple. So uh, a couple of thoughts here on how to go about doing that. Uh, As a disciple-making pastor, your goal is to produce disciples by moving people through the four stages. So I think the first thing you need to do is assess where you are. I mentioned that some yesterday, but I encourage you to draw these four quadrants Explore, connect, grow, multiply, and literally write down what is the primary purpose of every program. The primary purpose. Do not let anybody say, well, they do both, or it does all three. No, it doesn't. It does one thing. Only one can be the primary purpose. Now, there may be secondary, tertiary purposes, but what is the primary one? And so you force them to log into this. We go through this exercise on a regular basis at our church. Okay. And so then you start to identify, okay, well, we've got a lot of holes here. We've got a lot of holes here. We're overly done here. And so you can do an assessment. Uh, you also need to choose metrics by which you assess the uh, effectiveness of each program. Uh, what is a metric? A metric is a measurement by which you determine the success of the activity, event, or program. Metrics allow you to assess... Uh, the ministry effectiveness. Uh, l- listen, you you can't improve what you can't measure. You can't improve what you can't measure. And uh, if you can't measure it, then you, chances are that uh, it's not being effective if you can't measure it. Now, I, I know there's some people say, well, you know, multiplication movement, you can't measure that either. You know I mean? You see multiplication, and that, that is true to a certain degree when you get into multiplying into sixth and tenth. You know, it's hard to get your hands around that. But that's not what most churches are doing. What I'm talking about are programs that you do all the time. Is there a measurement of how effective they are? We have a phrase at our church that goes like this. Facts are our friends. In fact, our last staff meeting, we passed around a chart that measured several metrics that we have. And as I was passing it out, I said, let's all say it together. Facts are our friends. Facts are our friends. Because it's easy to get defensive when you start looking at metrics, right? Because then all of a sudden, it's not looking as good. And staff members particularly get very defensive about, well, you know, that means I'm failing and I'm bad. Okay, just enough with that. It is what it is. Now, the role of leader is to take something that's failing and make it better, right? So it's just showing you where you need to give your attention. It doesn't mean that you're a personal failure; it just means that it shows you where you need to go to work. And we can't stick our head in the sand and pretend that things are are, are not what they are. So uh, I think having good metrics. So you need to have metrics on the um, on the evangelism side. Uh, are you are you Um, Are you reaching people with the gospel? How are you going to measure if you are? How many times do you present the gospel? How many people come to faith in Christ? Uh, What is that metric? We use the uh, conversion growth rate as a metric there. Uh, Conversion growth rate, you take the number of baptisms that you have and then you divide it by your church attendance, your regular church attendance, and that produces a percentage number. So if you had... uh, 10 baptisms, and you divide that into, you said you had a, a hundred, um, a people in your church, then you had a 10% conversion growth rate. Okay? Or if you had a hundred baptisms and a thousand, you had a 10% conversion growth rate. Uh, that, you know, on the national average, 10% conversion growth rate is a healthy number. So we shoot for 10%. Um, now, we, we also deal with that as an aggregate number where we look at, our whole church how we doing in conversion growth but we also dive do a deeper dive into every department children youth adults because sometimes you can have an aggregate number but your kids are doing all the heavy lifting for that number that's keeping that up but your adults aren't doing anything you know what I'm saying or or maybe your youth are really carrying it but so it kind of masks the problem so we dive into those so we do a conversion growth rate growth rate for every department so that we can assess, okay, are we doing okay here? If that number is low, that doesn't mean that I'm a failure or that person leading that is a failure. That means that leaders need to go to work on that area. So what do we need to, how, what's the problem? How can we fix that? What assessment do we... How can we move that number where it needs to be? Now, that sounds awfully corporate, but honestly, if you're not measuring what you're doing, then you're, uh, you're not leading very well, in my opinion. Um... Because this is important. Well, uh, I don't know that I have off the top of my head. No, no, we have several uh, metrics. Well, so we have metrics for that. We have uh, goals and metrics. I'm going to get to goals in just a minute. That talk about how many people are in groups, how many people are joining the church, how many people, how many guests are attending. Like the last report I, I got, we're, we're we're trying to increase the number of registered guests on Sunday. So, how many did we have? What's our percentage of registered guests? How many of those registered guests actually joined the church? You know right now we have about a third of the guests that come join the church that's pretty good according to national average 1 out of 3 join your church that visit the problem is our registered guests are are lower than they should be so we got to figure out a way to get that number up so these types of metrics allow you to have thoughtful conversations about it but it, the metrics are in each quadrant Okay, so I, it's kind of like a, if you have a swimming pool and you have a guy that comes in and dips a little stick down in there and he looks to see, you know, if your balance is right, you know, in your pool. This, we're basically just dipping into each one of these with these metrics to see, are these healthy? Are these healthy numbers? Are they not healthy numbers? What needs attention? What doesn't need attention? So we measure evangelism. We measure uh, uh, how many guests attend, how many are joining uh, we measure how many people are in groups, how many groups that we have. Are they multiplying groups, or how many people are in service? So those are metrics. Then we go over here to this quadrant. We we measure how many people have been discipled, uh, how many people have multiplied, and are now multiplying themselves. How many how many groups are multiplying? So we these are the types of metrics that we choose across the board and that and that way when we start dipping into these we can tell hey we're doing really well here and really well here over here is not so good so we're going to we're going to bend some energy and some thought and some resources toward the area that we need to beef up does that make sense yeah that's a good question that's why we dealt with relational investment first before this right Because if you are doing that first, if you're discipling people relationally, that's going to keep you in balance. That's why we didn't jump to this right off the bat. And so I think that if you're discipling and your leaders are discipling, that keeps relationship on the front end. It's not about the number. It's about the person that you're investing in. But numbers represent people, and that sounds very corporate, but at some point, if you're leading the organization... To make sure it's disciple-making, you have to assess somehow if it's being effective, right? Um, and so we, we look at all those types of metrics at each level, and we, we evaluate those. And we evaluate them year over year and that kind of thing to see, are we, are we seeing growth trends? Are we seeing uh, uh, trends going the other direction? Are uh, we having warning signs going out? And so we look at these metrics, so, we start with a uh, metric, okay? So, first, we're gonna evaluate the process. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna plot where we are in that. Then, we're gonna assess what metrics are we going to use. You can get metricitis and get way too many, alright? So, I just encourage you keep a few that you think are the most important. Sometimes we measure stuff that really isn't actionable information. So, what are the most important things that you need to know that you keep on your little dashboard that you're you're evaluating as you go through here to make sure you're not uh, taking a downward turn somewhere. You know we keep good metrics about finances and, and church attendance and this sort of thing, but we ought to be measuring things that have to do with the process as well. Okay, y'all with me? Uh that
0: at multiple levels? Your paid staff, your volunteer staff, your church laity leadership—all
1: that level? Uh, no. Uh, we, we do it at our, our pastoral staff team. We look at those metrics. Uh, some of them we evaluate on a trimester basis. I'm uh, about to share with you, but we do our, uh, goal setting once a year, but then we evaluate them on a trimester. And the reason why we do trimester is because we're cyclical that way. Tend to, your January, February, March, April tends to go like this. And then you start the dive in May, June, July, August starts coming back up, September, October, November, December. I don't know if your church is that way. Almost every church is like that. You know, it's just kind of how we take a dip, you know, in the summer, people travel, people are gone, you know, we're doing a lot of stuff off campus with camps and mission trips. And so, so we just said, hey, these are clearly segments of the year, and we don't want to just always get an aggregate number all the way across. So what we'll do is we'll measure trimester one to trimester one last year, summer one to some, summer last year. And so that gives us a apples to apples comparison of how we're doing. Does that make sense? Your giving will tend to do that. Your church attendance will tend to do that. And so we say, well let's just call it call it that. So we we evaluate on a um trimester basis. But but only the metrics really only our pastoral staff look at and then our leadership council looks at those, and we keep them briefed on that because that's driving the decisions we make about what we need to work on. Uh, we'll roll out new initiatives because we're we're hurting in this one area, so we're going to go to work on that area. Does that make sense? y'all okay, y'all still with me okay um, so uh, another thing you do, I want to do once you establish uh, where are we in the process uh, what metrics are we going to use to determine? How we're doing? Then you want to you know do some goal setting uh, to address the issues that the metrics showing you need to be addressed. And so, I believe that every church leader should plan their ministry and evaluate their ministry and pray for spirit direction. We try to set uh, smart goals. You're familiar with that, probably. Y'all familiar with smart? Smart goal is a acrostic that's specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time bound. So, uh, say it again, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound. So, we don't want any dumb goals. All right? <laughs> I tell her, I all the time. No dumb goals. We want smart goals. And, and a dumb goal would just be, um, uh, we want to help people grow spiritually. That would be a dumb goal. Now, do we want people to grow spiritually? Yeah. But how could you measure that? And what, when are you going to do it? And how are you going to do it? And how would you know if you accomplished it? See, that's not a smart goal. Uh, so a smart goal would be we want to take, uh, 10% of our youth emerging leaders through book one, uh, in the first semester. Now that's a smart goal. That's specific, it's measurable, it's attainable, it's realistic, and it's time bound. And, and then we're going to see if we can get them to multiply in the next semester. And our goal is that, 25% would multiply. Now we might blow off the top and then 75% that does, but, but we're going to, that's a smart goal. And I'll tell you, when you get to goal setting, um, this is a challenge. It seems, Obvious and intuitive, this would be easy, right? You just set a goal, uh, and on your evangelism side or your discipling side or, I mean, your, your growth section or your, you, it would be easy to set these goals. But what happens is the goals in ministry get very watered down into these nebulous things that can't be measured. And actually, some people want them that way. They want them to not be able to be measured so that they can still feel good about doing it and no sense that they have not done a good job. And, um, So that's why you have, people will resist on a, on a team setting goals. Uh, what I've just said on our team is this is the way we're going to roll. And so if you want to roll like that, great, let's go. If you don't want to roll like that, there's a gazillion churches that don't do this. And you can just, uh, have your pick. But this is the way we're going to operate. And doesn't that sound like fun? (laughs) <laughs> Don't you wish you were on my staff? Anyway, um, so so we deal with that uh, as we're doing that. Second thing, you need to make your goals. Make sure they're moving people through the process. That's the end result, is you just want to try to move people through the process. Your goals should stretch your faith. You know, Don't make a goal that says, my goal is to breathe today. Okay? Well, okay, that's a goal, but... You know anybody could do that you know set a faith goal I, I like to tell our staff, hey, set it out there you know even if you don't hit it you know if you if you get six you know sixty percent down the road, then that's showing effort right but don't say i 'm going to you know my goal is to meet with my leaders once a month well you know that you should be doing you know that's that's not a big aggressive uh big hairy, audacious goal right that 's just maintenance. And so you have to work with them, and you have to be patient uh, to work that through. Because some people are really driven this way. You Type A people, you're probably sweating in your palms right now. You're just so like, yes, all right. Other people are like, oh, this is awful. I just thought it was about ministry, you know? Well, this is about ministry, but it's about leading ministry, and that's that's different. This is about leading your church to change. That's what we're talking about. Um, so then after that, you want to have regular evaluation all right so we do this goal setting once a year at our church we do this once a year we carve out about six weeks for this process and reason why we do that is we go back and we plot out okay let's draw the draw the charts let's plot how are we doing what's not working uh, we look at our metrics, what areas are not doing well. Then we give them a good month to go back to their teams and say, okay, what could we do? Let's pray fast, seek God. God, what do you want us to do to try to move this thing off of high center or move this thing forward in an area and then to craft those goals and to move those goals into some type of action plan? So we try to go from a goal, here's our goal, and then here's my action plans that, that deal with the, you know, what, what, what am I going to do? When am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? Who's responsible for it? And so we try to put the, all that in writing. And we tried to do all this like in a week, and it was just, everybody's head wanted to explode. Okay. So I learned that week doesn't work very well. So we give them plenty of time. And we do this kind of in the, in the summer when things are a little bit lower in in time and so they have time to really pray on it, really think about it, really uh consult and and dig into it and not feel rushed into it. You don't want them to rush into it cuz you want your every team member to have ownership in this and feel like God's leading them in this, right? We're seeking the Lord for direction. And if you just rush through it, you just be putting stuff on a page and maybe not hearing from God. So, um we we do this annually And we come up and we, we do it, these goals based on our trimester. Okay. Here's our goals for T1, T2, T3. And then, then we go through evaluation. And, uh, I think you, you have to regularly evaluate what you're doing. I recommend that you plan your ministry once a year and then you evaluate, you know, maybe three times a year. So we try to evaluate at each trimester. We just evaluate. So how's it going? are we doing well did did that work out the way that we thought it was going to work out did you did less than what you thought or more than what you thought what problems did you run into what what restrictions did you have maybe yeah we had this great plan but then uh we didn't there was no money <laughs> to pull this thing off like we thought there was going to be or uh yeah this minister over here took all of our volunteers and so we actually undercut ourselves or whatever the situation is so We need to know that and then we synchronize uh, our efforts there. Our church tends to operate that way. So during this evaluation plan, we try to do the plan, do, check, act. Uh, Plan, do, check, act. You know, so we plan to do the work, we do it, we check it, you know, how it's gone, and then we act um, accordingly to uh, any adjustments that need to be made. It is really critical that you find some time to do this type of valuation. This is not the fun, uh, uh, warm and fuzzy part of disciple making. You say, I thought it was about disciple making. It is about disciple making. It's about leading a church to be a disciple making church. Now again, remember, you got your definition, you've you're got your process, you're disciple people, you've got a team of people now that are making disciples, but now you're leading your team to say, are we really doing these things in each area? What is the, Are we fitting the process? Are we doing well in the metrics? And we're setting goals and we're evaluating along the way. Now, as you do that, uh, now is the chance, once you've accomplished this, now is the time to talk about the dreaded word change. Okay? Because after you've given that effort... Now you can start to assess, hey, this program just does not work. I mean, we've, 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 we've measured it. Uh, we have, we've, we've tried to set goals that, that move this thing forward. It's not happening. We've evaluated this on a regular basis. This program is not producing any results for us. And so now you're ready to tackle, well, things maybe then need to change. Maybe that program needs to change to fit and maybe be replaced with something that fits it better. People uh, in churches are like people on planes. They don't like any sudden moves. Okay? And so uh, you don't want your plane to suddenly bank to the right. Okay? You want it to ease to the right. And so I think you need to keep that in mind. Most pastors fall into two categories when it comes to change. Some of them change way too slow. They're very patient, and they will allow ministries to go on for years, decades, because they don't want anybody to be upset, and they don't make any changes. And the, so they it stops the multiplication of their ministry. Others change way too fast. They come and say, I'm killing that, killing that, killing that, killing that, and the church goes into shock, and oftentimes, you know, Uh, bites back, you know, sheep bite, you know, and uh, they bite back and they get mad and they fire him and then bring somebody else in. I don't think either one is good. I think, I think having a process to always evaluate your ministry then produces opportunity to bring about change that is thoughtful and reasonable and where you have some data. Hey, we, guess what? I can just show you the numbers on this program and it's, not producing what you thought it was going to produce. How can we continue to resource something with time, effort, and energy that is not being productive when we have something we can replace it with that will be much more productive? Well, see, that's just reasonable, right? Now, not everybody's reasonable, uh, but you're going to deal with that anyway, okay? So uh, that's how you go about deciding what to change. And I'm telling you, this is the best way for you to bring about change without having a blow-up at your church. Now, guess what? As you start to bring about changes, when people go, well, I don't know why we do, you've got these people you've been discipling that are out in your church now that are supporting you and are going to be a part of that process. Hopefully, you've moved some of those disciples, people, into your leadership. So now your leaders buy into what you're doing because you personally discipled them. Jesus put the people he discipled into leadership positions. It should be your goal to put you know, people you've discipled or have been discipled into leadership positions in your church. There that way you don't get into these uh um conflicts over philosophy of ministry, which is a lot of what conflict is about in a church. Okay? Y'all with me on that? Now as you bring about change, this sounds so simple on the board, doesn't it? But it is the hard work of leadership. And when you go about changing uh, there's a, a good way to do it, and there's a bad way to do it. So let me just, uh, or at least, communicating change. You know, we talked about this is how you identify what needs to change. Uh, but but let me talk about communicating change. Um, I think that uh, a bad way to communicate change is on Sunday morning to say we're killing uh, VPS this year. Okay. <laughs> Maybe VBS doesn't need to go, but you declaring it ex cathedra from the pulpit is bad idea. All right. What? Uh, You know, did you know about that? No, I didn't know anything about that. They run to their deacon friend. They run to their leader friend. I didn't know anything about that. He just declared this change. That's, that's just recipe for disaster. So the best way to communicate change is what I would call, um, cascading communication. Okay. Think about, um, like a waterfall that's coming down here, okay? And uh, this is like a fountain, and the water is flowing, cascading down. You want to uh, communicate change in this way. Uh, First one is, uh, I start off with what I call the tribal chiefs. Every church has got tribal chiefs. You know who they are, right? Every church has got them. Uh, They can be your greatest asset or your greatest hindrance. Every church has got tribal chiefs. These are the people that when they speak, everybody listens. They have influence. They may not be on an official committee, but it doesn't matter. If they stood up and said, preacher, I think we need to, everybody else say, that's right. You know, they, they've, they've earned some level of influence. So I always keep these tribal chiefs close to me as much as possible. I try to disciple them first. I try to get them on board. I want to help them grow spiritually. I want to invest in them because they, they carry weight in the organization and so i communicate change first through the tribal chiefs so i say, what do you think about that i'm thinking about this look at these numbers what do you how do you think that 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 works is, is that good you know stewardship of what we're doing and what about what if we did because i know this if they say we're not going there uh then i need to hold off and keep praying and keep working because otherwise, those tribal chiefs will leverage their influence, you know, against what I'm trying to do. And I don't, I don't want that to happen. Uh, second thing is, th- I, I usually go to staff. So I'll go now to staff and I'll deal with, you know, whatever changes. What do you guys think about this? This is what I'm thinking. You know, give me some input on that. What do you think would happen if we did this? What, re- how could we replace it? And then we move into, you know, key leaders. What I mean by key leaders are maybe uh, authority Based leaders. You may have a leadership council. You may have elders. You may have, um, uh, key decision makers. Okay? Uh, I think this is where you're getting good input from them. Okay? Once you kind of pass this level, now you're, you're not so much asking for input as you are now communicating the change because you have all these people in agreement that that's what needs to happen. Okay? So now you go out to volunteers, and you say, "Hey, volunteers, this is where we're headed. Uh, we've been working with our staff and our uh, and our committees and our leaders and our elders, and this is how we're rolling out." Now, get this: every when you talk to your key, uh, when you talk to your tribal chiefs, they're hearing it first. When you talk to them, now they're hearing it a second time. When you're talking to them, they're hearing it a, another time. When you're talking to them, they're hearing it. See what I'm saying? It the The messaging is constantly being up at the top, repeated over and over and over by the time you get to the church down here, which is your announcement on Sunday, all these people have been in the loop, so when these people go oh he's going to do what he's going to run to my key leader oh yeah, we talked about that are what did you you know about that oh yeah well he he called me, we talked that through. Or wait a minute, do you know about that? Oh yeah, we we've prayed about that for three months. See what I'm saying? So you have the support of these folks. What is a death knell? Is when the pastor decides to skip all of this and make the declaration here, and then they run here and go, "No, I don't know anything about it. No, I don't know anything about it. I don't know what he was thinking. I would have never done that." And you know, it craters down. I tell you what, this little chart can save your ministry right here. All right? It's a simple thing, but I'm just telling you, uh, I've lived enough of this to know that this is important. Are you all with me?
0: And the damage, if you don't, will carry on even to the next pastor.
1: Yeah. i it. So. Yeah. Yeah, I will. Some
0: guy yeah. killed something and didn't
1: tell anybody. That's right. And so now, nobody trusts you. Exactly. And so you're having to rebuild trust all over yeah. again. And so this is how you build trust in your leaders. You know, I told, I've told our deacons, by the way, at our church, deacons don't run the church. They, um, they are ser- there's a servant group, they're a servant body. They don't, they're not invested with power to make decisions about policy or so on. But I, so I would put them in kind of the key leader, uh, or maybe even volunteer, but somewhere around here, category. But I told them, I said, look, you will never hear an announcement from the platform that you don't hear it from me first. You're never gonna have, it's never gonna happen. And they. They know I don't have to go to them to deal with things, but I always regularly just say, hey, I just want to catch you up on what we're thinking. And I'll seed it a little bit say, hey, we're kind of working on this area, but we don't have that figured out. We'll let you know. Two months later, hey, we're thinking about this. Three months later, hey, next next time we meet, I'm going to talk to you about... (laughs) Now, that requires planning and forethought, but that's the plane just... Banking to the left just gently. And then we go, yeah. So when it finally comes out, they go, Yeah, remember I've been telling you for three months we're going to talk about that. You guys got any questions, let me know. Talk to me offline and and it just it just helps people to feel like they can trust your leadership. You're not gonna just shoot from the hip and go off road. Uh they can trust you. And the more they trust you, then you can lead, right? Can't lead if they don't trust you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a good, good point. I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, there is one thing that expedites this process, and that is crisis. Crisis, urgency. You may not have a year to make these changes. This, this should have happened a long time ago before, before you got to that spot. You know what I'm saying? Somebody that was on the watch failed to deal with this stuff, and that's why you're in the problem you're in. And so at that point, though, uh, when you get to, to that stage, you can move a lot faster because they know if they don't move faster, they're going to die. So I think at that point you still have to deal with your tribal chiefs and your key staff. But you go, guys, our timeline has shrunk. We we have to do make some urgent moves now in order to stop the bleeding and stabilize this patient or it's going to die. Okay and uh so I think you can move a little faster that way um, uh, that's kind of like in chris's situation they They were said, "Hey, we need help, you know that kind of thing. You, sometimes they say we need help, and then you actually start saying, "Oh, we need to lop off this limb. and they're like, "Oh, you know, I didn't want that kind of help you know uh but but I would say in the general leadership sense um this is the better way to bring about change. So you're not shooting from the hip and one minute you're killing someone, the next minute. It's very methodical. It, very, it, it takes time. It takes a little bit of patience, but you keep everybody with you. Um, most of the time, like I said, pastors either change too quickly or too slow. And, um, neither either one of those is bad. Okay. So here's what I want you to do. Take a minute to talk to your neighbor, uh, about, uh, do you have a plan to evaluate your ministry? How do you do that in your church? Uh, what, what changes do you think need to be made right now? Uh, and how have you communicated changes in the past? Okay, So just take a minute to kind of digest what we just talked about and put it in the context of your church right now. Okay, ready, go. I'll call you back in about three minutes. Okay, everybody, let me have your attention right quick. We've got, uh, we've got about 15 minutes, 20, about 20 minutes. So we got about 15, 20 minutes, and I wish we had more time to talk, right? Because we have so much to talk about, uh, and uh, I wish that Normally, when I do something like this, it's stretched out over more time and you can really dive into the details. So I'm sorry. I feel like I spill it out and then say, okay, y'all are going to have to figure it out. Uh, but uh, but I, I hope that it's helpful at least to start conversation. Amen? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Thank you very much. It's by the book, all right? Uh, but what I want to talk about is the last move. And that is the move from addition to multiplication. We've talked about moving from a tradition, this is how we've always done it, to evaluation. How do we evaluate and bring about change? The last one is to move from uh, addition to multiplication. And this is, uh, this is really where it gets exciting, okay? the addition to multiplication. Uh, again, we know Jesus is the model. We've, we've defined a disciple. We know the process. I've now personally started investing in people, choosing a tool. I've developed a team now of disciple makers. Now I have this team in place. I've moved them into leadership. We, now we start evaluating our ministries. We start making needed changes to move it to more exponential growth. And now the last thing is we want to move from addition to multiplication. And I thought about um, an illustration about this: This is Mount Everest. Okay, when you climb Mount Everest, there are key uh, camps along the way. In other words, you can't reach Mount Everest just in a direct shot. You have to take lots of time to go through these key points. For example, the base camp down here. This is at seventeen thousand seven hundred feet. That's the bottom, right? Seventeen thousand. If you've climbed, I've climbed a couple of fourteeners. Uh, nothing, uh, over close to even 17,000 feet. I think Kilimanjaro is 19,000 or something like that. So, but that's, uh, that's really, really high. Maybe Kilimanjaro is not even that high. Anybody know? Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, I've got this fixation on climbing Kilimanjaro, and my wife is like, you're crazy. And my daughter's told me, Dad, you better hurry up and do it because you're getting old. So <laughs> anyway. I guess I better hurry up and do it. Um, the next, once we get to base camp, the next stop is Ice Falls. Ice Falls is at 18,000 feet to 20,000 feet. It has deep crevasses, ice, uh, pinnacles, uh, out of, uh, you gotta be out there by 4 a.m. or the ice begins to melt and can crash under your feet. Very, very precarious. If you make it through that, then the next one is called the Valley of Silence. It's at 20,000, 21,000 feet, a flat, deserted area covered in snow. Um, if you get through that, you get through the Rocky Patch, which is stage four there, which is at 21,000 feet, and it's got lots of rocks. So at this point, the clouds are coming underneath you, and they said it's just very ethereal, very otherworldly type of experience there. Uh, then if you pass through that, you hit the Lhotse Wall. Lhotse Wall is a sheer ice wall that's 4,000 feet tall and requires a technical climb to get up the Lhotse Wall. It's very, very difficult to do. And then when you pass that, you're into the death zone before you can reach the top. The death They call it the death zone because it, there's just not enough oxygen to sustain life. Um, and so that's why many were the oxygen mask, all right? So, the reason why I'm telling you this, so what does this have to do with disciple making, okay? In many ways, um, being a multiplying disciple making church is like scaling Everest. We We're down here, and we look up to here, and we go, man, I went to that Disciple-making forum, and how awesome would it be to be up there and be making disciples and multiplying all around the world. Man, that would be awesome, but from here to here, it takes a lot of work, and it's a daunting task. In fact, each one of these base camps kind of remind me, uh, there are four uh, base camps that you have to go through um, to be a disciple-making church. First base camp is what I call uh, camp focus. Camp focus. Okay? Now, this is this is all stuff I've already taught you. Camp focus. When you're at camp focus, this is where the disciple making journey begins. This is a place where leaders begin to be exposed to other disciple making leaders. They start to catch a vision of what this is about. At this camp, you begin to examine the scriptures, you start reading the gospels, you start studying the life of Christ, and you begin to see that Jesus had this intentional plan. You start to wrestle with the definition of a disciple. At camp focus, you become convinced that jesus' way is the way uh, to do ministry, so some of you you're at camp focus okay that's good that's where it all starts starting to getting the word, get a definition start getting a vision for it then beyond camp focus is uh camp establish camp establish so now what you're doing establish yeah There we go. Camp established. Uh, At this point, the leader starts to put into action and start to model what he or she has become convinced of. So you start creating a process of disciple making. What does that look like in your church? You start picking out tools. You start meeting with people that you're personally discipling. You start intentionally uh, making lunch appointments with people far from God so you can share the gospel. This is just happening in you. But you're starting to establish that. In your life. You're starting to uh, invest in your staff. And pour into them. Uh, soon you're you're, you're you're now beginning to reach out. And invest in others. And you're beginning to see some multiplication. Happen a little bit. Reproduction is happening at a limited scale. The danger here for Camp Establish. Is that you're going to have some people. That are going to start pushing back on you. Why are you spending so much time doing that? Why are you uh, meeting with those people? Why, why are you... Uh, uh, investing your life like that. There, the, the winds of fear of change uh, can be extreme at this point. Um, and maybe others are going to say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. That happens at Camp Establish. The next camp is Camp Build. Camp Build. So now what's happening, not only have you established things in your own heart, but now you're beginning to build this out. Here you craft a mission statement and vision statements. You start to evaluate the current programming of your church, and you start deconstructing some programs, and you start leading through change. Um, you start you're cascading communication, and start building a new church from in the infrastructure that will be disciple-making. This is very dangerous, obviously, because... Um, You can't get to the summit without going through this build phase, but you have to rebuild it from the inside out, and you're going to face critics at this point. Staff and volunteers may prefer the status quo and not be sold out. Uh, Some of them just won't take the journey with you. They will resist setting goals or resist. They like it the way it used to be. This can't build. But if you keep going uh, through that process, then you reach... Camp Multiply. Camp Multiply. And this is where you really begin to see uh, multiplication happen. And when I, I, I told our staff this illustration, I said, I can remember when we were at Camp Focus. And I went, this happened back in... 2015, when we started studying the scripture, and I can remember when we moved to establish, when we started actually discipling people and started establishing patterns of reaching loss, and that happened in 2000. You know, that was like 14 and 15. And I gave dates to it, and I said, I can remember in the camp build. Remember when we start really evaluating our structures and changing some things? Yeah, I mean, they're all like, yeah, yeah, I remember. I said, now the next step for us is camp multiply. We're like right up. We're like right here. Okay. But the challenge is can't multiplies on the other side of the Lose wall <laughs> okay in other words, very few churches get to multiply because this climb is very difficult. It takes a lot of effort to get up through there and really begin to multiply uh, your ministry. This is what Jesus really wants for his church is a multiplying. Church. When you look at the church in the Gospels, this happened rapidly. Uh, in two years, the church had filled. If you look at Acts, um, the church had filled Jerusalem with its teaching in Acts five twenty eight. In four years, uh, 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 four and a half years, the churches were rapidly multiplying. Acts nine thirty one. In nineteen years, they had turned the world upside down. Acts seventeen verse six. In twenty eight years, they had spread. The gospel had spread all over the world. Colossians chapter one verse fifty six. So multiplication is rapid, uh, but multiplication is also difficult for many many churches. You probably don't know a whole lot of rapidly multiplying churches. You might see it overseas, but it's hard to see that happen here. And it's hard because you got to go through these other areas to get there, um, and to sustain that. But you know what? Multiplication is very important to Jesus. Very important to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, uh, I don't have time to develop this, but Jesus oftentimes had harsh words for things that refused to bear fruit. Right? Think about the barren fig tree that's cursed. Right? Think about the parable Jesus gave of the of the fig tree that won't bear any fruit. And he says, "Cut it down." He said, "No, give me another year to feed it and tend to. If it doesn't bear fruit, cut it down." Jesus talked about, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you a branch that doesn't bear fruit is cast to the side. Uh, Jesus had a lot of harsh words to say about. Things that don't bear fruit, that don't multiply. I wonder what he thinks about churches where there's no multiplication happening. So, there's a lot of reasons why churches don't multiply. I'm going to go through this really quickly because uh, our time, whoo, man, man I, we could use another hour, but I don't have it, so here we go. Booker your seatbelt. Uh, one reason why we don't multiply is just they're just don't they lack spiritual maturity. A lot of churches don't multiply quickly because they, they just don't have spiritual maturity, the vision, direction from the pastor uh, to do that. No one is doing it personally. They're not spiritually mature, so they're not m- multiplying Distractions. They're busy doing so many other things that they're not multiplying themselves spiritually and making disciples, making disciples. They have an aversion to risk. They, you know, man, if we multiply, if we started this thing new or we started that thing new, it might fail. So we can't do that because that might fail. And so we have an aversion to risk so we don't multiply. Another thing is unwillingness to sacrifice. You know, multiplication requires giving of ourselves and sacrifice. Remember at the, at that last stage that I said, uh, in the multiply stage, Jesus talked about sacrifice, self-denial, and suffering anybody want to sign up for that all right <laughs> that's not a big sell, you know all the hard words of jesus of denying yourself and taking your cross that's all is what is required and that's difficult for people to do that's why it's a steep wall to climb um, another thing is just a lack of dependence on god i mean you have to really depend on the lord uh, to multiply your ministry. But if if you will do this work of understanding what is a process, what is a product, Jesus' way is the best way, you start to develop your own uh, people and, and you start discipling people on your own, then you start building systems in your church to do that. You do it first, then you build the system. You'll understand the order of that. Say yes if you understand that. Yes. Okay. Because that's really important. Don't do this before you do this. Craig told you, that will not go well. And then, then you can begin to multiply. Now, there are three kinds of multiplication I mentioned briefly yesterday. I'll say them real quickly. The first one is personal multiplication. So that is when you invest your life in another person. Okay. When you disciple another, they disciple another, they disciple another. That's personal multiplication. Like, uh, Chris said that in his church, he knows how many people are multiplying. At our church, we know we have roughly about 200 proven reproducers. They have Proving themselves to multiply themselves at least once. Most of those more than once. Um, that's not those that have been discipled. Those are those that have gone on to reproduce themselves. Uh, so that's personal multiplication. Then you have group multiplication. right? So this is multiplication that happens in the context of groups. As you mu- disciple people within your group, you raise up leaders, and then that group multiplies into two groups. This is how you get spiritual depth in your church. This is how you get spiritual uh, a growth a numerical growth in your church, okay, so you really need both it's 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 spiritual growth here, numerical growth here as groups multiply, the church multiplies, and then lastly um, is church multiplication. this is when you uh, the church is growing, so you start a new campus or you start a uh, new uh, plant church plant or replant or something like that. That's how the church begins to multiply out. Okay. Um, when I was in Oklahoma City, we were in a Again, a very transitional neighborhood. It was very difficult. All the church around us were declining. Remember, I told you I hit that crisis point. I told you that yesterday. I hit that crisis point. We got to change. Started reorienting. We started doing camp focus. God, what is it? What did Jesus do? Defining a disciple. What does this look like? Then I started discipling people like Gibson that walked in the door, and other guys started discipling and training up leaders. Then we started building systems by which we could multiply, and and really started evaluating. And making changes to make us more effective in reaching people for Christ and walking with them to maturity. And then out of that came multiplication. We started, uh, we planted about five ethnic congregations. We had a Vietnamese congregation, a a, a Korean congregation, an international congregation, an Hispanic congregation, because it was so diverse in this area. And I knew that not all of those folks were going to come to us. There were even language barriers there. So we saw that as an opportunity to do that. So we started multiplying churches. In fact, we had one of the best uh, best services of the years in Thanksgiving. All those congregations would come together and everybody would applaud the other congregation. We almost paraded it in like the Olympics. You know, everybody would pray, everybody cheer, and then we'd take the Lord's Supper together and it was translated in six different languages. And then at the very end of it, we would all sing one song, but we'd all sing it in our native language and, and it was just like heaven, you know. So here's this dying church, but now we're seeing growth. We're seeing multiplication. We we did a another campus. So we started another campus and that began to grow and now it's gone on to be its own thriving, growing church. So we saw that. We went back into the inner city and we started going into the schools and caring for the schools and, and, and our disciples that we had trained were now going in there and leading Bible studies, winning kids to Christ. We saw hundreds of teenagers come to faith in Jesus in the inner city. And so multiplication started happening. Churches planted, people come to Christ, people personally discipling, groups multiplying, church multiplying. And then so much so that we had such an impact in the inner city that the school district does this big gala at the cost Convention Center downtown. It's televised all across Oklahoma City, and they identified some community partners. And the community partners for that year were Chesapeake Energy, the Daily Oklahoman, and Northwest Baptist Church, which was our church. Uh, I mean, those two were pretty big corporations. We had a, We had a little bitty budget, but we did five times as much work in those schools. Uh, with tutoring and help and power washing bathrooms and replanting and sodding uh, uh, ball fields and caring for them and seeing kids come to Christ. I could go on and on of stories about what God did in that, seeing people come to faith in Jesus. All those schools began to see the church as the church. They just referred us as to the church. We're going to the church. And uh, our church became very important in that community as a result of that. When they called out our name, they showed a video reel of all the different ministries we were doing, all the multiplication had been happening. And I, I, me and one of the guys stood up to receive this award, and everybody gave a standing ovation. And as they did, I can remember the, vo- the words of Jesus when He said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Now listen, that didn't happen overnight. That happened because there was a crisis of a of a consultant saying the church is going to die. Move out. And we said, no, we're going to go back to Jesus' model. We started making disciples. We started building disciple-making systems. And we started multiplying the ministry where we were planted. And it was a movement of God. And uh, I believe that God will do the same thing for you if you're faithful to do it. Because it's Jesus' plan. In fact, I told you that in the Great Commission, there's the, the the divine imperative is make disciples, right? Go make disciples. But there's another command in there too. Dan kind of mentioned it. Uh stole my thunder a little bit. He mentioned it yesterday in our last session, in a, a big group session. He said, There's another command. It says, and lo I am with you always. That and lo means and look. Look, I am with you always to the end of the age. What that means is this. If you're committed to making disciples in the process that Jesus gave, there is this great, tremendous promise that He will be with you. He'll be with you in your church. He'll be with you in the transitions. He'll be with you and He'll bless it. Because I believe God is looking for churches that He can bless because they're doing ministry the way He wants it done. Okay? I think we are out of time. Um, So uh, let me just pray for you guys before we go. Okay? And thank you so much for your faithfulness to be here. Uh, After we pray, Zach's got a ten-second announcement to make about the rest of the day, and then, then we'll go. Father, we just love you so much, and we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. Lord, we don't deserve it, uh, but you just pour grace on us, Lord, in favor in Christ. And we thank you for that. And um, we see the words of Jesus to make disciples, and we see how he did it, and we see the, the process that he wants us to walk. But, God, sometimes it's like standing at the bottom of Everest and looking up at the top and going, I don't know that I could ever get there. But, Lord, I pray for these leaders here, Lord, that you would give them great wisdom, and great discernment to take these things and weigh them against your word. And um, Lord, I pray that you would give them step-by-step direction, that they would hear a voice behind them saying, this is the way, walk in it. Lord, I pray that you would protect them uh, uh, from mistakes and from bad decisions or, or from evil influences or just bad counsel. I pray, Lord, that you would give them clarity of focus and determination to follow you and to please you at the end of the day. That's all that we need to do is please you. And Lord, I pray that as a result, that you would let them see the fruit of their ministry, that they would see fruitfulness and multiplication, God, because they were faithful to follow you right where you planted them and, and right where you put them. And so, Lord, we know that we cannot do this on our own. We're so dependent on your spirit to do the work, God. So our eyes are on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.